Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, choir, and thank you for singing this morning. You sounded good today, so I expect you to listen well. As we turn to Isaiah chapter 45, we will be looking at verses 20 through 25. So be finding that in Isaiah 45. Now, as most of you know, at least if you've been attending here for some period of time, that I do not do a lot of evangelistic sermons, nor am I gone from the pulpit because I preach a lot of revivals. I have done a couple of revivals in years gone by, many years gone by, but I'm clearly not your typical revival preacher. And fewer and fewer churches are having traditional revival services. And while I do seek to include the gospel message in most, if not all, of the messages that I preach, I seldom preach a full-fledged evangelistic message. Now, for those of you who may not know what I mean by that, an evangelistic message is a sermon specifically designed to proclaim the gospel so that those who do not know Jesus Christ can seek him and be led to respond favorably to him in repentance and faith. Now, there are several reasons why this is not the mainstay of my preaching. For one, it might just be an imbalance on my part. Perhaps I do need to do more of these type of sermons. But I do try to let the text dictate where I go in the message. That's one of the reasons I want you to have your Bibles open, is because I want you to know that what I'm saying comes from the Bible, not just what I've thought about during the week. And so because much of the New Testament is directed to believers striving to help them grow as a disciple and equip them in the service of Jesus Christ, that is where the majority of my sermons land as well. The second reason is because I've been in churches where there are mostly evangelistic sermons, and over the course of years, I've seen how that can stunt the growth of believers. If all you hear every week is evangelism geared toward the non-believer, and you've been a believer for many years, then you're not going to grow as you should. And finally, and probably the most important reason, is philosophical or even theological. And that is, I believe when we gather as a church, we are gathering as the professed believers in Jesus Christ. So we gather on a Sunday morning as believers in order to be equipped for the service and in order to worship our Lord. Years ago, the idea was that your task during the week was to invite your friends and loved ones who did not know Jesus to come to church on Sunday mornings in hopes that the preacher could preach them into heaven. But I think a more biblical view of things is that we gather on Sunday mornings so that we can be equipped through the Word of God so that then all of us can go out and evangelize and share the gospel. So all of us have a responsibility to live out the gospel and to share the gospel. And then the hopes would be that those whom we have shared the gospel with during the week will gather with us on Sunday morning to make their profession public. Now, I did, I, now if I did a straight evangelistic sermon, and again, I probably should do more of them, where would I go? What verses would I use? Well, you might immediately think of John 
the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's clearly a great verse to go to to speak evangelistically. Or I thought of Acts chapter 4 in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Another great verse to use, and there are certainly many others, but my goal this morning is not to simply quote evangelistic verses. So as you might have guessed, I am doing an evangelistic sermon this morning, but I'm doing it from an unlikely place. We're not going to John 3, 16. We're not going to Acts 4 and verse 12. We are going to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 and following. And I want to be very clear this morning that this sermon is in fact directed toward those who do not know Christ with an emphasis upon urging you to recognize that you are apart from Christ and therefore turn toward him and trust. So that's my title, Turn and Trust. Now you say, well, what about me? I've been a believer for many years now. And you've just told me that this sermon is not primarily directed toward me. So what am I supposed to do? Am I now to tune my mind out and tune my mind onto Anything else I want to think about? Am I to get up in just a moment when you read the scriptures and leave? Or click off if you're listening or watching us by Facebook, which of course is one of the dangers of watching online. You have the option that none of us will know if you just click off. So is that what I'm supposed to do because you've said this is geared toward unbelievers? Well, I want you to understand that that is not what I want you to do, obviously. Because this is still applicable to you for several reasons. One, because I do not do this every Sunday morning. I do it rather infrequently. It is a good reminder for all of us to hear the message of the gospel and in fact analyze our own response to it. Have I indeed turned from my sin and trusted in Christ? You see, there are a lot of false professions in the Christian church. That is why, to be quite honest with you, our membership roles are three plus times more than those who attend. Because there are a lot of people who have made professions of faith in Christ, but who are clearly not faithfully following Christ in discipleship. And the Bible makes that very clear, that it is possible to make the claims and yet those claims to be false. And then secondly, as I've just mentioned a moment ago, it is your responsibility and mine to share the gospel message with those we come in contact with, with a view toward leading them to Christ. And so a reminder of that message is an equipping of you to go out and do that very thing. And so this, in fact, does apply to all of us. So let's look at Isaiah 45, verses 20 and following, as we see our need to turn and trust. Verse 20, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other gods or God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. 
Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory." Now, last week, I burdened you with an eight-point sermon. Eight points is very good if you are a deer hunter, but it is not so good if you are coming to listen to me on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to cut it in half today. There are going to be four points this morning, and we will begin with the essential nature of idols. Again, our context is the same context we've been in for several weeks now. That is, Isaiah is prophesying over a hundred years into the future concerning the Babylonian captivity. He will not live to see that, but he is telling them what is going to happen. And as a result of that captivity, they are going to become discouraged and they are going to become depressed and they are going to begin questioning their relationship with God. Now, I need to remind you of a couple of things so you get the setting. I hope you will remember that one of the major sins that led them into captivity, one of the major reasons God allowed this or even orchestrated this to happen in their lives is because of idolatry. That is, they had a desire not to totally abandon God, but to bring in the gods of neighboring nations so that they might coincide with the one true God. They weren't abandoning the worship of God. They were just adding to it with many other gods. Then we also need to know that in that time, nations and gods were linked together. And what I mean by that is this. When a nation would conquer another nation, the implication was that their God was greater than the God of the conquered nation. After all, their God had won. And so the question begins to circulate during this Babylonian captivity. Maybe the question is just in their minds, or maybe they're talking about it around the coffee pot. But the question is this, has our God been discredited by the gods of the Babylonians because we have been defeated? And if that is so, is it time to adopt the gods of our captors, the gods who have proven themselves in battle. These thoughts and questions are behind the scenes in our text this morning, and God is going to speak to them. And so he calls the people together to think about these idols and what they are really like. And he basically issues two devastating critiques concerning the nature of idols. Verse 20, first of all, they are powerless. They cannot save anybody according to the true God. Now, the picture presented here is the parading of idols in a religious procession. There it is. There is a festival of some sort. There are people lining the streets, and they are parading down the streets with their idols of their gods with them. And the ignorant people are marching with the powerless idols through the streets. 
So not only is this a critique against the idols, but it is also a critique against all of those who are marching alongside them, praying to them, and putting their trust in them. One of the chief aspects of prayer is the belief that the God to whom we are praying is listening and is powerful enough to actually answer. You see, when you and I lose the belief that God is able to answer, then there is no point in prayer. And that may explain one of the reasons why we so infrequently pray. Because in the back of our minds, we're wondering, is God really listening? Is God really going to answer? Or does God even have the power to answer? So if you come to the conclusion that God does not have the power to answer, then prayers are useless. And yet these people are praying to idols whom our God says are not powerful and they cannot answer prayers. Now again, we, we don't go to the extreme of praying to idols, but we do have idols in our lives. And as I say so often, the idols of the West in modern society are not figurines that are placed on our mantelpiece to whom we bow down to on a daily basis. That's not the idols that we deal with. The idols that we deal with are possessions or power, perhaps popularity or success, maybe the idol of sports. I mean, basically anything or anyone we trust and honor more so than we do God can be defined as an idol. So we need to get out of our minds the idea that an idol is a figurine, and instead an idol is anything that we elevate beyond the position of God in our lives. And with that as a definition, I trust you can see that there are plenty of idols to go around in modern America. But none of these idols can save. And as we'll see in a moment, there is good reason for that. They are not only powerless, but they are also unintelligent. God challenges them to get together and bring to them his strongest case possible. He asks them to do a group project. Get together, put your heads together, and come to me with the strongest case possible. It's almost as if we're in a courtroom scene here. And the lawyers have figured out that their case is not very strong. And so they've asked the judge for a few moments for a sidebar so we can discuss how to bolster our case. The whole picture here is a little vague if we don't understand the background. But God clearly says he is the one who has told them all of this years earlier. Something that the idols were wholly incapable of doing. Which is why I said here that they're unintelligent. They cannot predict the future. But the question is, what is it that God has told them? To what does this refer? There is some debate about this among scholars, but it seems to be not only his prediction of the 70 years of captivity. Remember, all of this that we're talking about in Isaiah takes place 100 plus years before it actually transpires. So not only did he predict that the Babylonians would come and conquer them and keep them in captivity for 70 years upon which God would deliver them, but he also predicted the means by which he would deliver them and the means by which was a man by the name of Cyrus, the king of Persia. God, through Isaiah, predicted that a man named Cyrus would, would rise up and be instrumental in returning them to Jerusalem, something that we know did occur from our Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this prediction occurred more than a century before Cyrus was born, 
and at a time when Persia had not even come to power, at least not on this scale. Again, the idols had no power nor any knowledge to be able to do this, but our God does. If you still have your Bibles open, look at chapter 45 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gnats may not be closed. God says, I'm going to use a man by the name of Cyrus who is yet unborn to bring down Babylon and bring you back to Jerusalem. So it is God who is the creator and God who is the controller of history, not some man-made idol. So idols don't just break down occasionally like the appliances in your kitchen or your car and they need to be fixed so that, so that they can function again. No, idols are always and completely worthless, and therefore they are not worthy of our trust, which is why we must turn to God and trust Him. So the second thing I want you to notice, and no doubt this is going to be the most controversial of our four points this morning, we've seen the essential nature of idols. Secondly, I want you to see the exclusive nature of God. Twice in this text, God declares that he alone is God and that there are no others. And this is the very statement that the world, and increasingly many within the church, simply refuse to accept. We live in a day, and it is not a unique day, this is not unique to us, but we live in a day where religion is okay as long as you don't infringe on others allowing others to seek their own path to God or no path at all. The general consensus among the religious is that every path to God is equally valid and equally true. And as a result, no one has the right to criticize or object to someone else's path. And certainly, nobody has the right to tell them that their path is wrong. In fact, many would say that the God you believe in is largely determined by the place and family into which you were born. And that is why there are so many countries that do not allow missionaries into their countries because they do not want another religion, in this case Christianity, to come into their country and try to convert their people to another religion. And as a result, a number of our IMB, that is International Mission Board missionaries, including the ones you saw on video last week, they are not officially in those countries as missionaries. They are there for other purposes because they cannot call themselves missionaries, and if they did, they would not be welcome. But the truth is, any monotheistic religion is by nature and definition exclusive. Monotheism is the belief in one God. That is, there is only one God. Polytheism, poly being many, means that there is a belief in many gods. And so Israel's surrounding nations were all polytheistic. But today, Christianity is monotheistic, as is Islam. And so the natural conclusion to this is we can't all be right. I realize that's what we want. We live in a day when we want everyone to be right. You can have your opinion. That's perfectly fine. I can have my opinion. Vastly different from yours. That's perfectly fine. Everybody can have their own opinion. And that sounds nice, and it sounds agreeable, and perhaps it might help us build unity, but it is simply not true. I mean, when there are opposing truth claims, 
the logical conclusion is that one must be right and the other is wrong. Now, whether we can admit that or not, or even whether we can come to a conclusion as to which one is right and which one is wrong, it doesn't negate the fact that one of them must be right and the other wrong. And there is no mistaking here in this text that God is claiming that he has no rivals. Now, you can choose to ignore that. You can choose to deny that if you want. But you can't get around the claim that God says, there is none besides me. And it's not just in Isaiah chapter 45, we see it in other passages as well, that God alone is God. Jesus made the same claim on numerous occasions. I mentioned this verse to you a few weeks ago, where Jesus concludes by saying, no man comes unto the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Or the verse that I began, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is only one name above every name at which every knee will bow. So again, I realize that this is not a popular message. In fact, frankly, I would expect that by this point in the sermon, there have been a few who've clicked off online. Because this is not what people want to hear. This is not what society teaches. It was not popular when it was first delivered, which is one of the reasons why Jesus wound up on a cross. Today, we are called a host of names as a result of this belief. We are said to be intolerant, bigoted, arrogant, and I'm sure you can come up with other names as well. But this is not our message. I didn't bring this up. We didn't make this up. Southern Baptist Convention didn't gather together and say, we want to claim that we serve an exclusive God. We, we didn't say these things so that we could be proud of what we believe and look down at others who believe something else. We're simply repeating what the Bible teaches and makes abundantly clear. Now, one of the reasons we don't like this is because we like choices. That's why we go to large grocery stores, because we want to have the choice of 30 different kinds of green beans. It is why convenience stores boast about how many drink options they offer you because you can mix all of the various things together and there's seemingly an unlimited supply of drink options for you. And so it's natural for people to conclude that there are any number of ways to be religious and therefore right with God. But just because there's a lot of people that conclude that doesn't make it accurate. We must maintain that our beliefs come not from our own imagination, but from God's revelation. And as you see in this text, God says there are no other gods besides him. So here again, we face a dilemma. Two opposing truth claims that both cannot be right. Either God is God alone, as he says here, or there are many gods, as society claims, but both of those things cannot be right. So our God is exclusive. He alone has power, and therefore he alone is the one who has glory. He does not share that with anyone else. Now, as my younger sister was prone to say during our growing up years, that's not fair. And that is what many people wrongly conclude. They wrongly say, because of that, that God is not a fair God. But while we claim that God is an exclusive God in the sense that they, he is the only one who can save, I want you to notice the third thing here, and that is the inclusive nature of salvation. 
We have an exclusive God. He's the only one that can save. But that doesn't mean that salvation is exclusive. We see here the inclusive nature of salvation. The Israelites believed that they were God's chosen people, which they were, but they believed it to the exclusion of all others. And we see this in the New Testament with their disdain for the Samaritans and their disdain for Gentiles in general. The early church struggled mightily over whether or not Gentiles could be saved. And then they took the next step and they said, okay, if they can be saved, how Jewish do they need to become in order to be genuinely saved? They believed not only in an exclusive God, but they believed in an exclusive salvation. That is not what we believe. While there is only one God and only one path to God, we see also in this text that all are invited to walk that path. We would expect God to bring about judgment to the nations that surround him, them. And of course, that is what he does in other texts. But here we see something different. We see God inviting all of those other nations to likewise turn from their sin and trust in him. An inclusive invitation to turn to the true God and be saved. There are no barriers here. There are no economic barriers. There are no racial barriers. There are no ethnic barriers. There are no barriers of any kind. This invitation is to be issued from uh, us or from God to all people to turn and trust him. All are to hear and all are invited to respond. And again, this is why we as Southern Baptists spend a huge sum of money annually to send thousands of missionaries all over the world. If there are many ways to God and all religions are equally valid, then we are quite frankly wasting our money. But since there is only one true God and that one true God invites the whole earth to respond and trust in him, we as Southern Baptists spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars annually to get that message out. What about those who have never heard, you say? That's a recurring question for the Christian. And the answer is we are doing all that we can to nullify that question altogether. That is, we're doing all we can to send missionaries all over the world so that there are no people left who say, I've never heard. Now, we're not there yet. There are still unreached people groups. But because we believe that everyone must hear in order to respond, and everyone must respond in order to be saved, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to send missionaries out all over the world with that message, though we acknowledge we've not succeeded in reaching everybody just yet. But now you do understand that the invitation is not just to the ends of the earth. It is to you as well. Those who have never heard need to hear and respond. But so do you, who maybe have heard the story virtually all of your life. You see, the danger for us is to become so familiar with the story that we don't see the radical nature of the call and our need to respond to that call. To turn away or to turn means to turn away from something and toward something else. So in the context here of Isaiah, they were, they were being urged to turn away from their idols and turn toward the one true living God. Now, more generally, we would say that we need to turn away from sin and selfishness and trust in God. That is, we, we must, that doesn't mean we must stop sinning in order to trust God. 
for we all continue to sin. It means that we must recognize that our sin is against God. As David said, against you, you only have I sinned. And because our sin is not primarily against other people, but it is first and foremost against a holy God, all of us deserve the wrath of God. But I've added self-reliance because so many people trust in themselves in order to be saved. They say, well, I've not committed any of the big sins without realizing, of course, that God does not categorize in that manner and that any sin is a sin against God. And so they say, well, I know I can't be perfect, but I'm doing the best I can. And they, in some way like that, try to atone for their own sins, all of which are work salvation. And work salvation is just as useless as the idolatry that we began with. And so for those who refuse to turn, self-reliance is usually one of the major reasons. Either they don't believe they need a Savior because they haven't committed the big sins, or they think they can do enough good things to override their own sins, which again is the essence of work salvation. So this is what we must turn away from, sin and ultimately relying on ourselves somehow in order to be saved, if we acknowledge we need to be saved. And obviously, verse 22, we are to turn toward God. Since he is the only one with the power to save, it is to him that we must turn in order to be saved. And since he is the one issuing the call to salvation, those who trust in him can trust that he will indeed save them. That's the essence of what verse 23 is saying. When it says his word is true, since there is no one or nothing higher than God, he swears by himself, something that the writer of Hebrews states about God when he talks about the promise to Abraham. Now, this doesn't mean that we ought to start swearing. That is, that we ought to back up our word by, by acknowledging something else or someone higher than ourselves. The Bible also says that we're to bet yet our yet, let our yes be yes and our no, no. But here it's just a way of saying that God, what God says is true and it will come to pass. So here's an Old Testament example of how the gospel was always intended for all. The invitation was for all nations, and that did not change when Jesus came. They had simply misunderstood that, and Jesus had to reteach them. Because it's here in Isaiah as well, and it certainly includes you. Which leads us to our last aspect that we need to consider. And that is the, dual, the dualistic nature of the response. And by that, I simply mean that there are only two responses. There are not many. There are just two. You can either accept this invitation, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ, or you can refuse. You can deny it. You cannot modify it. That's the one thing you cannot do. You cannot change it. You can either accept it or you can reject it. And as I've said before, putting it off is just a more subtle way of denying it. So here's another example of a verse that you know but you might not know where it came from. You might not know that this originated in Isaiah, the latter part of verse 23 there that talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. You might know it from elsewhere. Paul uses it twice. He uses it in Romans chapter 14 to refer to the judgment seat of God, making the argument that all of us will give an account of ourselves before God. But you probably know it from its more famous passage, and that is in Philippians chapter 2. It comes right after that hymn where we hear about Christ humbling himself and coming to earth and ultimately dying and rising again and being exalted by God. And then it concludes with a quote of this, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now again, this does not mean that everyone will be saved eventually. 
While the Bible issues a universal invitation, I need you to hear this distinction. While the Bible issues a universal invitation, proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth and invite all to come, it does not teach a universal salvation, which means not everyone is going to be saved. So what does it mean here when it talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing? It does not mean that everyone will have turned and trusted. It means that some will have, and they will bow in praise to God, but others will realize their error too late, and they will bow, and they will acknowledge God, but it will be unwillingly and painfully before they are judged eternally. So you can bow in one of two ways. You can bow as a pardoned worshiper, or you can bow as a condemned criminal. And the choice is up to you. Again, we see the only two responses in the last couple of stanzas of these verses. There are, there are going to be some who reject God, and they will come and be ashamed. There are others who will embrace him as Savior, and they will be justified and will give him glory. So on the surface, this seems like a very straightforward decision. Better to confess Christ and be reconciled to God rather than face him in shame one day. And yet so many people choose to put it off, thinking that it will be uh, better some other time and they can make a choice in the future. Never mind that the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Never mind that the Bible says we do not know what tomorrow might bring. In other words, you don't even know if you have another tomorrow. So delaying your response to Christ is indeed a risky endeavor. So I am indeed urging you this morning to turn and trust. Turn from your sin by repenting of it. That doesn't mean you have to stop sinning totally. It means you need to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. And that is why we have a hymn of invitation virtually every Sunday morning. That's what we call it, though you may not have known that, a hymn of invitation. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The hymn of invitation is not a chance for you to gather your belongings so that you're ready to get out the door as soon as we finish singing. The hymn of invitation is not a time for you to leave so that you can get out before the crowd gets out. The hymn of invitation is a very serious moment in our service where we are inviting people to respond to what they have heard in the message. And even if you're not ready to respond, you do not need to be a hindrance to someone else who might be. And so it's an opportunity for you to respond. Now, what is that response? Well, generally, it's threefold. Number one, it's a response to exactly what we've talked about this morning. You've been convicted by the Holy Spirit that you've never repented of your sins and by faith trusted in Christ, and you say, I need to do that today. I do not need to put it off. And if you're listening online, obviously you cannot come forward and do this as I'm urging others to do, but you can certainly do that right there in your own home. Don't delay for when you're back in church. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ right where you are. Secondly, it's an invitation to come to say, you know what, I've already done that in the past. It might have been this past week, it might have been 10 years ago, but I've never made that public by coming forward and saying, I need to be baptized, with baptism being the initial step of obedience after salvation. And so you may need to come and say, I've been saved in the past, but I've never followed through on believer's baptism, and I want to do that today. Or the third response is to join this church. Yes, we are still inviting you to join this church. Pandemic or no pandemic, we are urging you to unite with a local church, 
And obviously, if you're here or listening online, we're urging you to, to unite with this local church and make this body of believers the one with whom you serve and faithfully following Christ. So you have that opportunity. Now, as always, you can use the hymn of invitation as a time to pray. Whether in your seat or down front, that's up to you. You don't have to sing the song. We're going to invite you to sing. But if you need to pray, forget singing and pray. So that's what this time in the service is for. And I know we don't spend a lot of time on that on a regular basis because usually I'm trying to fly through my sermon and get it done because we're running over time. But every once in a while, I need to remind you about the seriousness of this portion of our service. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. But we're inviting you not just to sing. Far more important, we're inviting you to respond. And today, that might mean you need to turn from your sin and by faith, trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the time we've had to study your word today. And I do pray that from these words of Isaiah many, many years ago, that your Holy Spirit would convict someone of their sin and of the judgment to come and of their need for the righteousness of Christ. And that today would be the day that they turn from their sin and by faith trust in you. There might be others who need to be baptized, others who need to be saved. Father, I simply pray that in these few moments of time, we would not be in a hurry to leave, but we would be in a hurry to respond to you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing.